This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kastensmith, and I will be your host today. And joining me today is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. I'm back. <laughs> He's back again. We have a couple of uh, updates regarding Mark. Uh, he has gotten yesterday, so we are recording this on August 3rd. Yesterday, Mark had his appointment with his oncologist to receive the results of his PET scan. And so he already knew that the cancer was in his kidney and in his bones, ribs. Uh, but one of the concerns was that the cancer would be in the brain. And we are very, very grateful to announce uh, that the doctors could find no sign of cancer in the brain, which is wonderful because that is a very, very precious brain. <laughs> for sure. And so I am glad for that. And the doctor also told him that though metastasized kidney cancer is not curable by human hands, uh, that they do feel that they can fight it and throw some chemotherapy at it to to give Mark longer days and a greater quality of life um, in the coming days and hopefully years to come. And so that was good news today uh, in a few hours. So this will have already happened by the time you hear this. He is going in to receive some pain management for some things that he's experiencing in his lower extremities. And hopefully there's an epidural and an injection of steroids that will take care of the pain and give him a shot at getting back at some normalcy. And so we are very, very hopeful that by the time you hear this, Mark will be uh, rid of that pain and on his way to start fighting this thing to get back to some sense of normalcy and and maybe even being back on the podcast. Who knows? It's too early to tell, but that would certainly be our wish. Yeah. We're praying for the supernatural and the natural now coming Bring together. On. Bring it on. So today we are jumping into uh, Mark chapter 15, which is the portion of Mark where we come to the crucifixion and burial of our God which is pretty wild to think that the God of the universe, the one who has created all things, who speaks the universe into existence by the power of his word, is going to die. Yeah, and it was interesting doing this in August, because usually this is like, in, like we had, obviously mm -hmm. the crucifixion comes up all the time, the Christian faith and sermons and thought and meditation, but to be in a deep dive, usually that's like Passion Week stuff. Yeah, yeah. Usually that's like Good Friday only. So in August, it was kind of I was kind of thrown off my rhythm, but it was kind of a fun way to start like, Hey, school's approaching, you know, kind of life is getting busier and you have this week that's like, no, we're going to focus on the cross in August, mm -hmm. which was unusual, but it was, yeah. it was awesome. When I used to teach the life of Jesus, you know, the school year would start in August and you'd be teaching Christmas stuff and it always felt like this is wrong. Yeah. Some, something's going wrong here. Yeah. Christmas in July. <laughs> that's right. So we're doing Holy Week in August. All right. So jumping into the passage, um, Mark 15, verse 1, it says, And as soon as it was morning, so you got to remember Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night. They've come, and Judas betrayed him in the garden of Gethsemane. So God is betrayed in the garden again. They arrest him, and they put him through this ridiculous kangaroo court trial uh, before the Sanhedrin and the elders and chief priests. They accuse him of all these things, and eventually Jesus says that he, essentially, I am the Messiah, and you will see me returning on the clouds of glory. And the high priest is like, you've heard it yourself. This is blasphemy. And so all of them are like, this guy needs to die. And so as soon as morning comes, which, by the way, it was illegal for them to hold a trial at night, they weren't allowed to do anything before the morning sacrifice, which happens at 9 a.m. in Jerusalem every morning during this time. And so they're rushing to get Jesus to the cross as fast as they can because they fear a riot. There's a lot of people who love Jesus. And when the crowds start pouring into the city, it's going to be right around 8.30 to 9 o'clock in the morning when they're coming to celebrate the morning sacrifice. And so it's like, get him, get this done, get yeah. it over with before the crowds come in. And as you see, Jesus is going to be going to the cross as the crowds begin to pour into the city. But it says in verse 1, as soon as it was morning, 
the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Okay, well, who's Pilate? So you have the Roman Empire, which basically governs all the shores of the Mediterranean world at this time. And over each of their little areas and, and territories, they would appoint governors that basically were there not to rule the day-to-day, but to make sure that the people who ruled the day-to-day were paying their taxes and were not you know, causing insurrections or anything like that. So the Sanhedrin and King Herod kind of controlled the normal governance. Pilate's there making sure they're not going out of bounds. And so that's the idea. And so they take them to Pilate. And the reason why they take them to Pilate is pretty cruel. If, if you look elsewhere in Scripture, sometimes you'll hear it taught that the Jews did not have the authority to put people to death. Yeah. That's partly true. They did put people to death all the time, but they did not have the authority to crucify them. Like you'll remember if you go to the book of Acts and you go to chapter 7, the first person who's martyred, that's Stephen, right? They don't go to Pilate and say, we would like permission to stone Stephen. No, they just stone him. Yeah. There were times in the Gospels where it says that the Jews tried to stone or kill Jesus. They didn't say, hold on, we got to go get permission from Pilate. <laughs> the reason why they're going to Pilate in this instance is they want Jesus to suffer the most excruciating, painful, awful death that was known to the world at the time, which was crucifixion. And beyond that, in the Jewish law, in the Torah, it said, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And so not only is this an excruciating death and they hate Jesus, so they want him to suffer as much as possible, but they want him to be seen as cursed. And the only way they can get an approved crucifixion is to go to the Roman authority. Yeah, and is Pilate always in Jerusalem? Is like that his normal habitat? No. So, so there's different places where he's going to reign. So there's, he's over on the coast at Caesarea, and he's going to be in Jerusalem sometimes. So he's traveling. He has different places where he goes. And isn't Caesarea where uh, the rock is that says Pontius Pilate, right? That's correct. Right. That's so that's correct. a cool fact mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. like, okay, so even as we go into archaeology that we see like on a stone, we see Pontius Pilate's Yeah, name. there's no question that this is a, a real person in history. We have, we have artifacts that prove his existence, and we know that he reigned from 26 to 36 AD. Um, this, this is a figure who hated the Jews. He really, really despised them and provoked them at every opportunity. In fact, he got warned by the emperor to stop because the emperor feared that all of his provocations were going to cause an insurrection. And so that happens before this trial, which is why the Jews have some leverage against Pilate. Yeah, you can see why Pilate kind of, you know, backs down and walks around and kind of just like, I'll give you whatever you want at this stage. Yeah, there was a guy named Sejanus who ruled another territory who was put to death for causing insurrections in his territory. And so the emperor, Tiberius, had put him to death and then comes to Pilate and says, look, you are going out of your way to make the Jews upset. You're hanging Roman shields in the temple complex. You're, you're spilling human blood and, and some of their, the places where they worship. You're just going out of your way to make a mockery of their worship. You're really upsetting these people. Stop it. And so Pilate now is really worried that the Jews are going to revolt, that they're going to riot, that they're going to rebel against him, because that would mean Tiberius is going to put Pilate to death or remove him from his governorship over this territory. And he wants neither, because both is like a death sentence to him. One physically, one you know, professionally. Going into this, the Jews know this. They've okay. they've been the ones who have sent off the complaints and the appeals to Caesar about how unjust Pilate is. So they know that Pilate's been rebuked, and so they come to Pilate basically saying, I dare you to stand against us, because you never know. We, we could riot, and Pilate does not want that. They have a pretty solid plan to get what they want. Oh, yeah. Like, it seems like it's strung together, but, yeah, you know, they got a good plan in the middle of that night to get it going. Oh, yeah. Super manipulative and Machiavellian. It's, it's gross. Yeah, it's it really is. gross. And they're going to use this to push this injustice that they have here. So... Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And basically without saying yes, he's, he's saying yes. yes. He's like, you're the one who said it. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So, you know, all these people who came with the half-truths that couldn't be corroborated in the trial before the, the Jewish leaders, 
they come and repeat all of it to Pilate. So Pilate's then got to say, are these charges true? So Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? Because guess what? Just like Jesus didn't acknowledge their kangaroo court when they were in, in front of Caiaphas at his house, now he's not acknowledging the charges again in front of Pilate. And he says, have you no answer to make? Because Jesus has been quiet, just like the prophecy says that he's like a, a, a lamb before it shears or a sheep before it mm. shears. He was quiet. See how many charges they bring against you? So they're just throwing everything at him, including the kitchen sink. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And you got to imagine, like, Pilate's thinking, I'm the one who holds your life. I'm asking you for an answer. They're, they've thrown all these charges against you that is really bad for you, and you're, you're good to be quiet? Like, don't you care that you're going to die? And Pilate's amazed that Jesus is so resolved and at peace to just hear these and not give a charge, not, uh, not to appeal and to plead for his life. Yeah, it's got to be the first time Pilate's heard that, or the lack yeah. of hearing that. Because, like, no one at their, you know, death sentence is like, all right, yeah. just let it happen. I mean, that's a crazy person in our world. And you, I don't think the Roman government was so powerful in these days that when you stood before somebody of authority, it would have taken tremendous courage. Like, Jesus isn't disrespectful here. Yeah. But he's not begging. He's not bowing down to Pilate. Not at all. Sense. And Pilate's going, my goodness. Like, this is, this is different. Yeah, he's definitely taken aback, you know, because mm -hmm. like you said, he's used to people, you know, giving him what he wants. You know, he's kind of the top dog in this Roman scenario mm -hmm. in this town. Yeah, and you, you'll see a lot of color that comes out in the Gospel of John in this exchange where, you know, Jesus says, you know, my kingdom's not of this world. In other words, I am the king, but my kingdom's not of this world, which Pilate's got to be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. What is that? I mean, the, like you said, the disciples don't even get it. We talked <laughs> about this before we recorded. The disciples don't get it. Pilate doesn't stand a chance yeah. to understand what, Je <laughs> what Jesus is talking about here. But he has this big exchange with Pilate in the other gospel where, you know, he's like, I've come to testify to the truth. And Pilate asked that very famous question, what is truth? And he's looking at truth. Jesus is the ultimate truth. He is, he is the key that unlocks all the mysteries and understanding of the purpose of the universe. He is the truth incarnate, and Pilate doesn't get that. So it says, now at the feast, and you got to understand, during the trial, if you, if you put all of the Gospels together, Pilate, for one, is already going to be biased against the Jews. He, he hates the Jewish leadership. And so if they come to Pilate and say, we want him dead. Pilate, it's like the Republicans and Democrats today. If, if they want Pilate dead or they want Jesus dead, Pilate's like, nope, he needs to be alive. Like, so they're already not sympathetic to one another. And Pilate investigates, he interrogates, and he comes back three different times to the Jewish people, the, the people who are ringleading this. And he says, I find no fault in this man, none. Like, I, I see no basis for him to be put to death. Um, and the Jews are probably like, hey, this is time-sensitive, Pilate. Can you stop doing your correct. due diligence here, big guy? Can you just do what we ask and just get this done? Because it's light is dawned. People are moving around town. The secrecy is going to end right now. That's correct. And so the good point. So all of this is time-sensitive. And so Pilate does something. Uh, the crowds are already coming. But at this point, the crowds are pretty stacked in their favor. Yeah. You know, they've brought their people, you know. Yeah, it's like if you show up to a protest, obviously, you know what you're coming to. So now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they'd asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. He sees through all this. You know, he, yeah. he knows their hearts. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to him, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? Referring to Jesus. And they cried out again, Crucify him. That's what they want. Crucify him. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. So 
there's so many different angles with this particular passage that the Gospels are just presenting this beautiful truth to us. First off, um, in some of the early manuscripts, this Barabbas, is, which is a last name, it, it literally means son of the father. So like whenever you hear a Hebrew name like Bartholomew, it means the son of Talmai. Oh, uh, like Bar-Abba. Bar-Abba, right, uh, son of the now. father. Or, you know, when you hear of bar mitzvah, it means you're becoming a son of the commandments, right? You're, you're accountable to the law at that point. That's the idea. And so bar means son, abba means father. So he's son of the father. And a lot of the early manuscripts actually list his given name, which was Jesus. Huh. So this is a really, really kind of beautifully sovereign poetic image that we're seeing here where Pilate comes and says, do you want Jesus, who claims to be the son of the Father, whose kingdom is not of this world, who tells his people to lay down the swords and, and to, to suffer and to love their enemies and to do all that? That's one kingdom over here. Yeah. And then in the other direction, you've got a guy whose name is Jesus, likely, Jesus Bar Abba, son of the Father, who's an insurrectionist. Already killed somebody. Who who takes up the sword. Never resurrected anybody. <laughs> right. And so you have these two kingdom paradigms. And in the first century, you know, like everybody who's waiting for the Messiah is thinking he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to go to war. He's going to lead an army. And so at this moment, you essentially have Pilate saying, what kind of Messiah do you want? You know, here's somebody that we've arrested that we have who picks up the sword, who who goes and murders people for the insurrection to overthrow Rome. And here you have one who's calling you to lay down your life. Wow, I never knew that. And what do they choose? Barabbas. The immediate kingdom. Mm. I want the immediate kingdom. I want the one who's going to fight, who's going to take up the sword. And we're still doing that today. It's, it plagues us <laughs> throughout history. You know, we never want the Savior who says, no, no, no. You got to lay it down. And you got to go love your enemies. And you got to keep your eyes on a kingdom that's not of this world. No, we get more fired up about the kingdom of this world, yeah. our kingdom here, more so than our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And this is one of those gut check moments where it's like, okay, which crowd would you be in? Yeah. You know, are you more passionate to, to raise your voice and say, man, King Jesus, you know, or are you crying out for Barabbas? Gut check, because that's something that plagues the church and always has. We yeah. want earthly power rather than surrendering for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so one that's a that's a great paradigm and self-diagnose. Yeah. Which, which one would you be shouting? You know, which one do you want? Which kind of a savior do you want more? But then the other part of this is we're like Barabbas in the story. You know, it's here you have a choice, somebody is going to face judgment, wrath, and Jesus steps into the place and he's going to bear the cross. He's going to bear the execution so that Barabbas, the wicked guy, can go free. Can you think of anybody who can relate to Barabbas? Yeah, it's weird. Uh, <laughs> it's a weird foreshadowing of substitutionary atonement. I never yeah. thought about that, that even Barabbas is being spared yeah. by a righteous Jesus That's right. in his wickedness. Mm -hmm. We are Barabbas because who do, who have we, what's our insurrection? We haven't done an insurrection against Pilate or Tiberius Caesar. Our insurrection is against the God of the universe. Yeah, it's bigger. <laughs> yeah. So... So we're worse than Barabbas. And Jesus, you know, with the Sermon on the Mount makes, you know, anger with your brother murder. So it's totally. not like we might, well, Barabbas, he killed a dude. <laughs> like, not me, Sam. Yeah. It's, uh, so we're worse. We, we've committed the insurrection against the God of heaven. We, and uh, by the way, we are responsible for his blood. Yeah. That's what took our redemption. You know, Spurgeon has this great line where he says, it's real simple, sin <laughs> is Christ-decide. And so... When you think of it, and there's another a great Puritan, I think, I can't remember who said it, but he said, you can't, you can't see the cross as something done for you until you see the cross as something done by you. Hmm. You know, it's your sin that placed your Savior on the cross. And so when you compare yourself to Barabbas, it's not like you have any way to go, oh, yeah, well, I'm way better than Barabbas. Yeah, there's no leverage on our end. <laughs> no. And in both cases... Jesus is going to be the one who takes a punishment so that the Barabbases of the world can go free wow. and find life. It's amazing. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool comparison, and it works. So, you know, in the story, we don't relate to Jesus. We get to relate to 
Barabbas. Man, always. Don't want it to be that way, but always there. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> and so what Pilate is doing in this story, he's like, man, I don't want to put Jesus to death. Yeah, and the crowd's the one escalating the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, Pilate's just like, this guy or that guy. And they're like, well, we want that guy, yeah. and Jesus should die. And then they're like, not oh, just die. Like, let's crucify him, Pilate. Like, yeah. Pilate doesn't bring up crucifixion first. No. So they come with this demand. He interrogates him. He investigates. He sees no cause. So then what he's going to do is he's he, Pilate is desperately trying to get an out yeah. to where Jesus doesn't have to be crucified. So in one sense, yeah, and remember in one of the other Gospels, it says, you know, his wife comes to him and says, please don't have anything to do with this man for I've suffered in a dream because of him. In other words, like, this is not good. Hey, you this is don't bigger than be you on, think, right. Pilate. <laughs> you don't want to be on the wrong like side of this. Like all good wives come to their husband yeah. and say, like, hey, the wake up, big guy. <laughs> That's true. And so Pilate's going to say, okay, well, how about Barabbas? And then he's going to have him scourged and present him to the crowds. And every time that they have an, an out where it's like, okay, well, look at how horribly he's scourged. Yeah, like, that's enough, guys, right? We're, we're good And here. they're still yelling, crucify him. So every out that Pilate has declaring him innocent three times, offering Barabbas, scourging him and presenting him to the crowds. None of that gets him off the hook. And eventually what he'll do is is you'll see he'll have to wash his hands of the whole ordeal. Can you describe scourging? Because like that's just a word in the Bible. Ooh. And like Mark's pretty, I mean, not casual. That's a bad, you know, but the physical yes. brutality of all of this, you know, the Gospels aren't like really expanding on all of that. But scourging is one of those things that was a real Roman. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah, so we can't like just like run past that. Like obviously the crucifixion is tremendously physically brutal, but like that wasn't the only thing that Jesus faced. Like all the way up to that moment, he's just beaten and disfigured, and he's kind of just taking one time after time. The scourging was absolutely far worse than what you see depicted in most movies or pictures of Jesus on the cross or anything like that. Then in 1986, the journal of the American medical association actually did historical research on what typical scourging looked like in first century Roman world. And they wrote this. So I'm quoting from JAMA journal of the American medical association. They said, as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls, because they would take it like a cat of nine tails, and in that they would tie up iron balls so that they were it was painful with force. And then they would also put in animal bones and things like that that were sharp and would slice you open. So they said the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victims survived on the cross. And going back into that era, there's a historian named Eusebius who writes about what it looked like because he got to see crucifixion victims with his own eyes. And he says, bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw the victims of crucifixion and scourging lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body, meaning the organs, both their bowels and their members were exposed to view. And so when we think of whipping, we think of, you know, on the surface of the skin, we think of, you know, almost yeah. like scratches. Maybe Indiana some Jones blood. stuff. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Indiana Jones, no. These these iron balls are crushing the ribs, the bones. It's ripping up the flesh. Everywhere would have looked like stripes. You know, when Isaiah writes, by his stripes, we are healed in Isaiah 53. At the end of the scourging, Jesus would have looked like a striped, bloody mess. Yeah, so you think, man, with something like that, like, not everyone even made it to the cross, right? Correct. Like, this would have killed a bunch of people beforehand. That's how brutal it was. Mm-hmm. And they, they had a rule in the Roman law that it had to be 40 lashes minus one because they had so perfected the art of torture that it's believed that they would do 39 lashes because if they did any more than that, the victim died too quickly without suffering. 
And that's their goal. That's it. It's to extend punishment in this as well. It's a it's a public scene. It's a hey, this is what happens when Rome decides that you're gonna die. Exactly correct. And so here you have Jesus who's you know, Pilate does this and in the other gospels he'll be brought back and he's just a shredded mess. And yeah. that's not good enough. I mean the cruelty knows no boundaries and mm-hmm. in, in how humanity treated our savior. Um, really, really wild. And it's amazing that time and time again, like Jesus even just keeps going, you know, not just physically, but even emotionally, you know, you see in the garden that they allow, he allows himself to be taken. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to the chief priest and he allows himself to be, you know, passed around. Then he comes up to Pilate and again, stays silent, just allows it. He takes the scourging and then allows it. And you just see this mm-hmm. whole story. It's like, you, know, you can just see Jesus' love and just like, mm-hmm. no, it's not, nothing's going to stop this. Yeah. Like, and I'm going to continue the mission until it's done. Yeah. And one outside of Mark and one of the other gospels, when he's talking to Pilate, Pilate says something along the lines of, don't you understand that I can spare your life? And Jesus, in this position that is so seemingly vulnerable at that moment, says, you have no such power. <laughs> you know, like, You don't have any power that's not granted to you from heaven above. Like, imagine that kind of boldness and confidence. Imagine what Pilate must have been thinking when he heard that. Like, either he's remembering his wife's comments and going, oh, my goodness, this is not this is not good. (laughs) Or he's thinking this guy's out of his mind. This guy's already lost. it. Yeah. And so Jesus makes it a point that nothing is going to happen to him apart from the will of his father. That's his comfort. And he, another thing is like you, if I wanted to, I could call on 12 legions of angels to come down here and rescue me and put all of you to death. But I know my mission and my mission is not to fight. It's not to pour forth justice and wrath, which frankly we deserve. It's mercy. So take it all. Yeah. I'm going to take it all. And by the way, you know, if my tormentors, Come to me by faith. Forgiveness is theirs. That's the heart of Jesus. It's amazing. Yeah, we're going to see that, right? Yeah. Is, is it a mark at the end with the Roman centurion? Yeah. Cool. It's, we'll get it's, there. It's really cool. So at this point, he, you know, it's amazing how vicious and awful scourging was. And it's just a throwaway line. And having scourged <laughs> Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And man, I don't know if you ever got to watch The Passion. Uh, you know, some people don't like depictions of Jesus. Yeah, Morgan hates it. I have to watch it alone. But watching that, the hardest scene of that whole movie for me was the scourging because they get it more accurate than any other depiction of it. You know, they went for it in a sense. Correct. It's they didn't just scourge the back. They did the back. They did the back of the legs. They did the buttocks. They flipped you over. They did your front. They did the front of your legs. They did everywhere. Yeah. Um, And they weren't they weren't decent about it, if you know what I mean. Okay, so everything on your body is being ripped apart and smashed. Um, And that's just, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Mark's audience in the first century would have known exactly what that meant. You know, sorry for being so graphic, but I feel like it does warrant a little bit more. Um, So it says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters, the praetorium. And they called together the whole battalion. And so they come together. Now it's the Roman cruelty is starting. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And so Jesus is claimed to be a king. And so they're going to mock him for it. And so they take a purple robe, a cup, one Matthew's gospel, I believe calls it scarlet. Um, and so there's, there's questions about that. Like, what does that mean? Well, Tyrian purple, which is a color of a fabric in the ancient world, was also the same as Phoenician red. And so it's a kind of a faded purple that has a more of a reddish tone. So it's very easy to understand from perspectives. They're essentially identical. And so he gets the crown of thorns. He gets the purple robe and they begin to salute him. Hail King of the Jews. And again, the loneliness of this, he's being mocked. There's no one there with him. He's poured out his life to love these people, and now they're mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down to him in homage, paying homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So this is 
you know, it's imagining him walking through this alone. And, you know, one of the things that I love in this, and I think part of the reason why Matthew adds that it's a scarlet cloak is all through the Bible, this kind of deep red is associated with sin. You know, when, when the, when the pro, even still today, you have the scarlet letter, which is associated with adultery or the red light district, which is associated with prostitution. You had Rahab in the story of Joshua, who puts a scarlet thread out of her window. Um, Isaiah writes, though your sin is as scarlet, it'll be washed white as snow. And so in this picture, you see Jesus who's being cloaked. I love the, the kind of poetry and in the midst of the darkness, Jesus is going to be cloaked with scarlet. Well, if scarlet is the color of unfaithfulness, and it's the color of Isaiah just flat out says, though your sins are as scarlet. You know, if Jesus is being cloaked in that so that your sins can be washed white as snow, it's, it's, it's communicating a spiritual reality by what's going on with the physical mocking. And so he takes the color scarlet and he wears it to himself. And they take a crown of thorns. That's no accident. You know, thorns were totally taking your mind back to Genesis 3. It's the first physical manifestation of the curse of the fall where God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And so what do you see there? Jesus is taking your curse and that is what makes him your king. Like you are grafted into the kingdom of God because he has taken the curse of thorns and made it his crown. He is being clothed in a covering of scarlet or sin. Why? So that it's so that you can be his subject. And later on, you'll see the soldiers come around and they cast lots for what? His clothes. His clothes, which are described as a seamless garment, which means there's no flaw, there's no blemish, there's no break, there's no fault. It's perfect. And so what do you, what, what do you see here, kind of in the poetry of God's sovereignty, Jesus is being clothed in scarlet. Jesus is taking on the curse of man's fall. And his enemies who have put him to death are receiving a perfect covering. It's, I, I love that. Maybe, man, maybe I'm not supposed to see that, but I do. Can't, can't unsee it now. <laughs> That's right. And so, um, and just like this third party, I mean, so it's like our sin is being put onto Jesus. Jesus is continually faithfully walking this road with a third party sin being put on his back and he remains obedient. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give in to sin. He doesn't fall under that sin, under the weight of it all. He just keeps moving on the mission Mm -hmm. and all of it. It's at any moment, you know, by Jesus's own words at any moment, he could have put a stop to it. You know, it's, it's not like he's, he launches down the road and he loses his authority as God, right? At any moment, he could have stopped it. And you think, you know, 39 lashes where it's ripping up the skin and bones and organs and all that stuff. And after every one of them, he thought, nope, they're worth it. Mm-hmm. After all the mockery, every time he got hit in the face with the soldier staff, he didn't say, I can't do it anymore. And his humanity, you know, he's, he's not impervious to suffering. He feels it. And yet after every blow, after every suffering, after every mockery, he says they're worth it. And it's every one of these, you know, determination to save us and rescue us from sin and death is a reminder of his intense love for us. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to race through the crucifixion, which kind of we're doing today, (laughs) you know, like this deserves some real thought and to imagine, you know, this is hours and hours and hours of suffering that he endured, um, and mockery, you know, there's nobody around him going, thanks, Jesus, you're doing great. You know, it's yeah, he's alone. completely he's alone. isolated. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it says when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which show up in, in Paul's writings, actually, which is kind of fun. Um, So because of him, the reason why Mark is telling you, hey, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, is this guy's kids come to faith and they become big figures, we presume, in the early church, uh, which is kind of cool. So this guy is coming from Cyrene. He's just standing there. He's there to celebrate the Passover, and all of a sudden the soldiers are like, you, (laughs) you know, you're going to help him. 
which had to be terrifying because the Romans hated the Jews to begin with. And it's not like they're like, and we'll take nice care of you. Thank you so much for serving us. Like he may get caught up in all of it. Um, And it's part of Mark's thing. Like, you know, Mark eight, you know, take up your cross, mm -hmm. you know, follow Jesus. Like this is, this guy's literally the picture of what Mark was talking (laughs) about. Like, Hey, you know, I've been hitting this theme this whole time. And Jesus has been hitting this theme. It's been leading this moment of crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And even in this, he's giving us this example. Like, Mm You know, Simon's picking up a cross and literally walking with Jesus to mm-hmm. Golgotha. Yeah, this is the first time we meet this guy, and it makes you wonder, like, what did he experience? What did he see? You know, he makes it to the cross. He watches everything, and it's kind of—it's interesting to know that Paul later is going to be writing about his kids being instrumental in the church. Like, so this guy comes to the Passover. He's not—I can—you know, he's not a Jesus follower. He's in Cyrene. Jesus has never visited there. You know, he may have heard news of a guy, you know, that was going around fulfilling messianic prophecies, but chances are he's a Jew coming to celebrate Passover and gets caught up in all the Jesus stuff. But it's so powerful to him, whatever he experiences, that these kids that Mark names for us, they're going to be transformed by what happened to their dad. They see some pretty wild stuff, which is cool. And so it says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Um, one of my favorite little tidbits about Golgotha, and this might be too much of a rabbit trail, but when, if you rewind the tape a thousand years and David defeats Goliath, who, if you've ever studied that story or heard Dr. Gage or Tom preach on that, Goliath looks like a serpent, right? He's, he's dressed in scaled armor. It's all bronze. The word Hebrew word for bronze sounds a lot like snake, Nahash. Um, everything is really pointing you to that. He's got a beam that's going between his shoulders, like a tail. Everything about him is serpentine and David smashes his head, which Genesis three says the savior of the world is going to crush the head of the snake. Goliath's head is crushed. Boom. And then you get this weird little detail that we're told that David cuts off Goliath's head and they're not in Jerusalem at this point, but David, for some reason, takes Goliath's head. We're not told why. He goes to Jerusalem and he buries it in Jerusalem. And so here, when you come across something that's the place of the skull, there's some theories that say Goliath, who is from Goth, that that word Golgotha, Goliath from Goth, that this is the place where Goliath's head was buried. And so David and Goliath was just a picture, just a foreshadowing of the, the man of God slaying the serpent, right? And here you have Jesus who is going to be put to death. His, he's going to be mortally wounded at the place where the skull is buried, and he's literally crushing the head of the serpent, the one who has all you know the reign of death and sin and evil. Jesus is going to destroy it at this location. I've always loved that. It's just so, so cool, a picture of God's sovereignty. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and, but he did not take it. Um, have you ever heard the reason for that? No. So when they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, it was to numb his senses so that he could last longer. Um, it was essentially to be a painkiller to take the edge off so that his body did not go into circulatory shock. Yeah. It was so that they could torture him longer so that it's a, it's, it seems like, Oh, you know, here's something here's nice. But no, this is actually intended to to make it more cruel. But Jesus does not take anything that will make his suffering less. He does actually it also, turns it away. Does it also have to do with, you know, when he's in the upper room, he's saying, I won't drink from this cup again till the feast. Is that Maybe. the wine? Sim- like he's saying like. Interesting. I never thought of that. Maybe. Yeah. yeah like he's not even taking that. The, the pleasure of wine and wine is a joyful substance. It's hmm. that's, a, that's a real interesting take. I had not thought of that. Maybe. Yeah. Cool. It says, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour. So the third hour is is nine o'clock. So it counts up from six. So the third hour will be nine o'clock. The ninth hour, which is when he dies, will be three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's the third hour when they crucify him. So what is the third hour? It's when all of the people start pouring in to the city. So now that he is taking his cross and he is going to be crucified, everybody's coming in for that 9 a.m. morning sacrifice. They would do a morning sacrifice at 9 a.m., and interestingly, guess what time the evening sacrifice was? 
3 p.m. 3 p.m. So Jesus goes on the cross at the precise moment of the morning sacrifice, and he dies on the cross at the precise moment of the evening sacrifice. And so when the temple veil rips and all that stuff, they would have been right in the middle wow. of their evening sacrifice. And when you know what they were praying during the evening sacrifice, it's even cooler. <laughs> it is just the timing of it's really fascinating. And Jesus was outside the city. Golgotha's outside the city, right? Correct. And so most of these people, Jerusalem would have been packed, so they would have been staying outside the walls, wouldn't mm -hmm. they have? Correct. So, so they would have been passing by, literally. Jesus is yep. coming out of the city. They're going into the city, or if they're a little tardy, they're already seeing Jesus on yeah. the cross. So if it was Rio, yeah. <laughs> everybody would have been late. You wouldn't have passed Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. It was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, "King, the king of the Jews. So over his cross, they put another uh, label that said the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. And so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So he's, he's catching scorn and torment from his captors, his tormentors, from the people on the cross next to him, everything. Again, he is totally alone. And it's the backwardness of the cross, right? Like all these people passing by, the, the cross looks like weakness in their eyes. It looks like mm -hmm. foolishness. It looks like, hey, hey, you worked hard on this earth for nothing because this is where you die. This mm -hmm. is where your legacy ends. And it's the backwardness of the cross where Jesus isn't calling anybody down. He's saying, like, this is a mission. This is where strength is found. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice is where love is. And, and everything comes down to this moment. And just the crowd just doesn't get it. They're just blinded by it. Correct. There's also another, and it's an even, it's a, it's a darker element to the story. If, if you go to the temptation, so when Jesus first launches his ministry, he goes straight from his baptism and he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil throws all these temptations at Jesus. But the first two of those temptations are prefaced like this. If you really are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you really are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple and God will catch you. God, in other words, God cannot let you suffer if he really loves you. If you're really the son of God, mm. you should never have to suffer. And in the other gospels that kind of add some of the other things that the people are crying out to Jesus, they say, this man claimed to be the son of God. If you really are the son of God, come down from that cross. And what are they saying? They're using the same exact logic that Satan used saying, if you are the son of God, you should not have to suffer. You should not have to die. And at the end of Luke's version of the temptations in the wilderness, there's this eerie line that says, when, when Jesus finally says, depart from me, Satan, after the third temptation, it says, then Satan left him until a more opportune time. Well, guess when that is? It's right here. And guess who he's speaking through? The religious leaders. If you are the son of God, you should not have to suffer. You hear that voice coming in again. It's the same playbook. It's, it's really, it's haunting. And that's always, we've said this before, that's always the way Satan comes at you is this. If God loved you, he'd never allow this to happen. Yeah. He, he wants you to question the faithfulness and the love of God. And so when you hear that accusation, recognize where it comes from. As Steve Brown says, it's from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. <laughs> yeah, Satan doesn't have many new tactics. You know, he's still living off the same one. Well, that's pretty effective. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's working. Yeah. It, it's, it, it crushes a lot of people. So verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, what's interesting is you go back and you look at some of the earliest writings that are in church history, a guy named Thallus, um, he writes in his writings about how there was a darkness over Judea during this region that no one could explain. And he says it couldn't, because of the calendar, it couldn't possibly have been like a solar eclipse. So it was some other supernatural reason why the land went dark. And in that same passage, he talks about an earthquake that we'll see in a minute. 
And so there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so for three hours, the whole land goes into darkness. This, this crucifixion has cosmic significance. The entirety of creation is responding. It's not just, you know, all of creation groans for redemption. Yeah. In this moment, you see creation actually doing something that's like a deep mourning or something. And at the ninth hour, so three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in this, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. It's the very first words that came out of David's mouth. And one of the things that's fascinating is back then, you know, like if, if I say, give me, give me a famous line of a song. <laughs> I don't know. That everyone knows. 8675309. <laughs> <laughs> no, a different one. I don't know. Eight six seven five three zero nine. You know it. Okay, well the crowd let's, knows let's it. Do it then. We know Jenny. That's the old eighty song, Jenny. But if I say eight six seven three zero nine, yeah, you you automatically know how to finish it because yeah. it's a song you've been singing your whole life, right? Well, I mean, kind of. Some of us. I mean, <laughs> so you you can finish the song. So. Remember that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the beginning of a song that they've been singing their whole life. They know the whole song. They know where it goes. They know how it ends. And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's true in a human sense. He is utterly alone. God is pouring out his wrath on him. And yet when he starts the song, even though that first line is really haunting, you know how the psalm ends? It says, posterity shall serve him. Well, what's posterity? It's children, right? It's descendants. Well, he's never been married. He doesn't have kids. What's it talking about? He's putting into his own mouth something that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet the, the end of the psalm is saying, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship and before him, they shall bow down all who go to the dust. Everyone who's going to die is going to bow down to him. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, his posterity, meaning those who have life beyond him, shall serve him. And so he he's singing the beginning of a song, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which calls into mind for them the whole psalm, which ends with all of creation serving him and those his descendants who have life because of him going on into the future. And so it's a very real cry. You know, Jesus yeah. in his humanity absolutely is forsaken, but it's not a failure of faith. You have to know the whole psalm of what he's singing right here. Because when, when you're on a cross, let's get into some more very unpleasantness, you can't breathe. Yeah. You know, so for six hours, and some people who were crucified would be up there for days if they didn't have significant blood loss. But what happens is your, your arms are nailed to the cross, your feet are nailed to the cross, and so your body naturally wants to fall forward, and it's putting all kinds of pressure on your lungs, and you can't adequately exhale. And so what happens is you eventually suffocate to death. But the Romans are so sadistic that when they put the nails through your wrist, they put it right next to the main sensory nerve that's in your wrist, uh, and it's excruciatingly painful. If you've ever experienced like a toothache where you get ice on a nerve in your tooth, it's like, ooh, it gets your attention major, right? So now imagine even greater nerves that run through your wrists and who run through your feet, and they put these rusty nails yeah. that go through that your nerves are hanging on. And so to catch a breath, you have one of two options. Either you take the nerves that are in your wrist that are nailed to the cross, and you pull those nerves against that nail so that you can pull yourself up to catch a breath, or you push out with your legs that are also a nail that's being hung on with those nerves and you're pushing yourself up. And so you're, you're constantly negotiating which excruciating fate do I want at this precise moment? Yeah. Do I want the pain of the nerves in my hands, wrists? Do I want the pain of the nerves in my feet? Or do I want to suffocate? And so people are just in this God-awful cycle. It's not like he's just hanging there. It's yeah. constant misery. It is constant torment. It is miserable. And so when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
everyone else has forsaken him. The religious leaders, his disciples, every, all of his followers, nobody's helping him. Nobody's encouraging him. You don't, you don't even hear the women who are at the cross like, I love you, Jesus. Like, there's nothing. There's no encouragement. Yeah. And at this moment, as the wrath of God is falling on him for me, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, I feel utterly alone. Yet even in that psalm, as we talked about, it's not a forsaking. Jesus' faith hasn't failed. Yeah but he's experiencing the very worst. But in that psalm, there's the hope and the, the confidence that God is going to make all things right. This is an excursus that we can get rid of, but do you think we take that too far sometimes? Because you hear some Good Friday sermons almost like rupturing the Trinity in this moment. Right, yeah. Like, but mm-hmm. the eternal God and his son. Yeah. So, yeah, they make it sound like Jesus's faith failed here. Yeah. And if his faith failed, then he wouldn't be sinless. Yeah. You follow? Like, and there's other people who say, like, when he's, Jesus's faith, for example, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's freaking out, you know, Mm -hmm. and he says, you know, let this cut pass from me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And there's people who say, well, fear is a sin, right? So, so how do you reconcile that with Jesus? And you got to think, like, Jesus Fear is a sin when you don't trust God's word, right? You yeah. don't trust God's promises. But Jesus isn't fearful because he doubts God's promises. Jesus is fearful because he knows what's coming. He's the one person that's going to have to be, in a sense, forsaken and to suffer wrath with with no option of mercy. He has to take it all for us. Um, and so when he says, oh, my gosh, look at what's coming. Well, what's coming is awful. Yeah. And and it's going to be, you know, a moment where the Father pours out wrath. And it's not necessarily a rupturing of the Trinity because God's faithfulness, even in the pouring out of the wrath, is not lifted. But Jesus knows for this moment, you're in it yeah. alone to bear this burden and this curse. Um, it's really amazing. And you get a sense, if you even understand a glimpse of the infinite nature of God's love and the connection that Jesus had had with the Father for all of eternity, the idea of feeling the displeasure of the Father had to have been terrifying, but it's terrifying in a way that is actually of faith. You believe God. Okay, that's helpful. You know, Jesus, God said, if you're obedient, you will suffer and die. Yeah. Jesus believed him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he knew it was coming. And it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And yet, when he looks at you, it's worth it, Hmm. which is mind-blowing. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Because the beginning of it is Oloi. It sounds like Elijah. Um, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And so they they take a, a spear kind of a thing. They put a sponge on it. They put it on wine. And they shove it up into his face to give it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So in, in the other Gospels, we're told that they use a hyssop branch to, yeah. to apply the wine to Jesus. Well, as a Christian, what does wine symbolize? The communion. communion, yeah. Yeah, blood. And so they're literally taking a hyssop branch, they plunge it into the wine, and then they stick it into his face, Right. Now, they intend it to be mocking, but the picture that that is intended, I think, to draw into your mind, it takes you back to Passover. When God is going to spare his people of the curse of death, what, what do they do? They take a hyssop branch again. That should make you go, wait a minute, I've heard that before. And they dip it into the blood, and they put the blood on the doorpost, which spares the people from death. And here you see, in some sense, they're carrying out what happened with the Passover, shoving wine with a hyssop branch into the face of Jesus. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning it, it initiates from heaven. When we're, in, uh, when we're in Israel, they do this cool VR experience, mm-hmm. which shows you like the, like you put on the goggles, right? And they shows you like what the temple would have been like in that moment. It takes you on like this crazy tour. And it, it was astounding to me how much bigger and magnificent everything was. Mm-hmm. Like when you read a book, like, we can only visualize kind of what we've seen almost, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not the most creative guy in the world, so that's all I got. So when he got there with these <laughs> VR goggles, like this, 
this verse kind of really stands out because you're like, okay, this this curtain was massive, mm-hmm. right? This curtain wasn't. Sam and I weren't going up on ladders and tearing it into, like, no chance. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a phone book being ripped. This is the largest thing that is separating, you know, the holy place from the holy of holies. Mm-hmm. And, and like, the, this is God saying, okay, this this done. was the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. So when they built the tabernacle, which was much smaller than the temple of Jesus' day, the curtain was four inches thick of material. Like this would have been massively heavy, almost immovable. So, And when you understand the height of how tall the temple was, how long this curtain would have been, how thick it was, it may as well have been a concrete block wall. Like it was that big, that massive, that heavy. And what's amazing about this is when you understand when when God first comes and gives the instructions for Moses to build the tabernacle, he says, on the veil, I want there to be stitched images of cherubim angels. And so whenever you came across something that said you can't come any closer to God, there was always the image of a cherubim, right? Yeah. The cherubim's role was to say here and no farther. So remember when Adam and Eve fell, they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Outside, yeah. Cherubim is stationed outside, meaning you can't come any closer to God. They were on the doors of the temple. They're on the curtain of the temple. They're on the Ark of the Covenant, which if you touched, you would die. And so if there's cherubim that are stitched into the tab or the temple veil, what is communicated is just like the Garden of Eden, here are the cherubim saying to humanity, you can't come any closer to God. And when God takes that temple veil, which was the border and he rips it, what he's also doing is he's dispatching these cherubim. He's saying there's no longer any anything that keeps you from coming into my presence, which is absolutely amazing. Um, and what that communicates theologically is, you know, what, what the New Testament says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Yeah. There's now nothing that condemns you You've been made righteous by faith in Christ. God has poured his grace and forgiveness out on you. You don't have to earn it. You can let go of your past and come straight into his presence. And it's almost like he, it's the promise of Eden is going to be restored. You're on yeah. your way to a place of paradise where all things are going to be made right and where you have direct access to God forever again. It's wonderful. Yeah, we see the reversing the curse again, like crown of mm-hmm. thorns. We see the Garden of Eden. We see Jesus doing what Adam couldn't do and what everybody, you know, after him could not do. That's right. And I mean, you, you brought up reversing the curse, but you walk through everything that happens in Genesis 3, every curse that's yeah. laid down. And it's absolutely fascinating to see how Jesus picks it all up. We hit on this when we did our Genesis series. But just to recap, you know, when, when God comes to Eve— he says, these are the consequences of the fall. It's you're going to, you're going to love your husband. You're going to be after him, but he's going to rule. He's going to be a tyrant. He's going to abuse you in some sense. Well, Jesus chases after his spouse, his bride, the church. And what does she do? Abuse him. She abuses him. He's experiencing that. The next one is probably the hardest one to wrap your mind around. And that is, he says to Eve, you're going to suffer heightened pain and childbirth. You're to bring forth life, new life. You're going to have to suffer greatly. Well, Jesus, not only is that obvious, like we're, we're told, you know, he tells Nicodemus in John yeah. chapter 3, you must be born, born again. again. Well, who endures the pain of that new birth? He does. So he takes the, the curse of loneliness. He takes the curse of pain to bring forth new life. Then you get to Adam and it's like, you know, you're going to have to sweat for your bread. Well, Jesus sweats in a way that's way more intense than Adam. He sweats blood, and he says, I am the bread of life, and I give myself away for free. Anyone who comes to me can take and eat and be eternally satisfied. He gives the bread away for free. He, The thorns you see he wears as his crown, the nakedness that Adam and Eve felt, the shame of nakedness. Well, Jesus goes to the cross in the shame of nakedness. The death that Adam is cursed to suffer, Jesus says, no, I'll take that too. And here's the one that to me is the most amazing. When God looks at the serpent, he says, cursed are you more than all the cattle. You will go on the on your belly all the days of your life and you will eat the dust of the ground. Then he looks at Adam and he says, you were taken from the dust 
you will return to the dust. Well, if Satan is eating the dust and Adam is returning to the dust, what is Satan eating? Adam. Adam. He's eating us. He's devouring us. It's like death is his banquet. And what happens with Jesus? When he dies, he says what? This is my body. Broken for you. Broken for you. Take and what? Eat. Eat. So what does Jesus say? He says, Adam, you were absolutely cursed to a fate to become a banquet of death. I'm taking that one too. And now I'll become the banquet so that you can live. Every conceivable curse of the fall that is taken up in the passion, and Jesus says, mine. I'm taking it all so that there's no judgment or curse left for you to endure. It's it's amazing, absolutely amazing. And so when he cries out his last, you know, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he quotes Psalm again, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, even though you're pouring wrath out on me. This is proof. Jesus' faith did not fail. His trust in the Father did not fail because he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. What he's saying is, even now I trust you with my spirit. I'm yours, even in the suffering and the death. Amazing. And so, and to talk at all when you're being crucified, because remember, you can't get any oxygen. So to cry out with a loud voice. Difficult. And totally difficult. And to breathe your last. The centurion's like, there's something radically different about this guy. I'm not feeling good about this. And oh, the darkness in the sky, that's probably not a good sign. And oh, the earthquake that just tore the temple veil down. Like, something's not right here. And so when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, and that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And it's wild to think, like, we'll probably, we'll see that centurion in heaven. And like the book of Mark's been amazing because like everyone who shouldn't know that Jesus is God, like you see the disciples all of a sudden, <laughs> like all the time, Jesus is like, hey, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. They're seeing miracle after miracle after miracle. And who's who are the ones crying out that Jesus is the son of God? I mean, it's the mm-hmm. demons, it's the demoniac, you know, it's all of these people that That's should wild. not. And here you have the, the last minute, this guy who, you know, Jesus should it's hate crucifying him. Yeah, yeah, like, and you see this guy be like, oh, and it's not just like, hey, this guy's different. He's different to the point, but like, he's the son of God. Like, mm-hmm. the Roman centurion is get, able to get all the way there just based off of the crucifixion, yeah. which is astounding. Wow. Like, hey, only God could suffer like this. That's amazing. You know, they look back at history. NASA keeps records of yeah, this uh, is cool. lunar eclipses. And so when it talks about the sun or the, the moon will be turned to blood, it writes about that in the prophetic, like in Joel and stuff. Well, NASA keeps track of when there would have been lunar eclipses. And right over Jerusalem in, in this particular year, in April of 33 AD, on this day, there's a lunar eclipse and it peaks right at, I think it's 2.56 p.m., which is 3 p.m. So right at the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, this the moon would have been blood red. Wow! For them, it's fascinating. Absolutely, in the sky that's that's darkened, right? Like fascinating how we now know some of this scientifically. It's really cool. And by the way, the earthquake that happened, they in the National Geological Survey magazine, I think it's called. They did a study on sedimentary layers, and they found that at some point between 26 and 36 A.D., there was a massive earthquake that hit this region just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Wow. And other historians talk about how everything was thrown down during this earthquake, which, again, affirms this, and it's just kind of fun and an encouragement to faith to see that stuff. So there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger, and of Joseph and and Salome, And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, which was unheard of in the ancient world. A rabbi did not have women disciples following him around. You just, you didn't see that. And yet here you have not only these people who are named who go to the cross with him, right? But many other women. So we don't even have the total number. Many other women that are following him around as disciples, which would have been revolutionary during that day. And even Mark wants us to see that. Mark is not a long book. You know, Mark is pretty short <laughs> with all of this. And here he is at the you know the peak of it. Jesus now has breathed his last curtain is torn in two. And here he adds this odd detail, mm-hmm. it seems like, in this passage about women. But again, it's just Jesus, you know, flipping everything on its side. Like, he's not 
Jesus, the God who hates women. He's not Jesus, the God who, you know, wants to demean mm-hmm. women. But here he is, his whole ministry is like pushing women into this mm-hmm. society that doesn't care much for women. Yeah. And and he endured a lot of scorn for his inclusion of women. His the early church, when you read the demographics, this needs to be a whole nother episode because it's fascinating to me. But if you look at demographics of the early church, it exploded among women, the poor, the enslaved, and it was the wealthy men that were the last to come around to Christianity because Jesus identifies with the oppressed. He puts them himself and, and he can identify as a slave. He can identify as poor. He can identify as marginalized and he turned no one away. And at this particular time in Roman history, we don't understand how revolutionary that was yeah. and how much Jesus likely suffered to do so. Mm-hmm. And the early, the early the skeptics that wrote against Christianity in the early church mocked it for being made up of women and poor people. Um, they, thought, they thought that that was a knock against it, and the world just flooded into it. One of the reasons why Christianity exploded was because so many of the women were becoming Christian, and they were raising up their children yeah. as Christians. Really fascinating. So when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, who's on the Sanhedrin, he's a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So here's an authentic, a person who's authentically searching along with Nicodemus, who's part of this. He took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, think of what kind of courage that had to take. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. So in other words, he has suffered so badly, he's been so badly scourged, he's been so badly treated that he died faster than they expected. Like I mentioned, some people were crucified for days. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone, a massive stone. These would have been like 4,000 pound cylinders that roll into a track and seal the opening of a cave. Uh, you see them in Israel. They're kind of neat to look at today. Sealed the stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And so that's where we end chapter 15, and we get to chapter 16, and we get to the most important news in the history of the world. And again, as important as the crucifixion is, it's meaningless without the resurrection. Mm. The resurrection is when Jesus defeats death and secures our victory over sin and death and welcomes us into this new kingdom as his citizens. All right, so we're going to leave it at that. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on another episode of the Out of Water podcast. Next week, as I mentioned, we will be jumping into Mark 16 with the resurrection. That is where our hope is. God bless and have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Water.